So over the past couple of weeks, we've been focusing on good news. Last week and the week before, um, good news. As we were looking at the beginning of uh, Romans 1. We're doing a series, for those that don't know, uh, on Romans, uh, which we're doing half up to Christmas and then carrying on after Christmas. Uh, there's various resources around. There's a book at the back uh, about Romans, which we're using partly within the Connect groups. Some of you in the Connect groups will have actually looked at this passage this week uh, and spent some time on it. So you're well set uh, for this. Um, but I think the groups are finding it helpful as we've been working through Romans. I think we find the videos helpful. Just bringing it to light. It's such an amazing letter. But anyhow, here... We've got a situation in, in the sense that we've, as I said, been focusing in on uh, the good news. But the next couple of weeks, this week and next week, we're going to be focusing on um, the bad news. Paul here focuses on the bad news just like a good doctor. You know, um, imagine if you went to the doctor and he decided, right, okay, I think this week we're going to have a different approach. The approach this week is that basically, whatever the diagnosis, whatever the situation with people, we're just going to tell them it's all right. It's going to be fine. So everybody who comes this, this week will just come in and we'll tell them the diagnosis, but we'll say, it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. I don't know about you, but that would not be a good doctor, would it? It wouldn't be someone that you would actually trust in many ways. You want to know what the, the reality is so that you can find the right treatment. And the thing about the Bible is the Bible never ducks the reality of the human condition. That is the one thing that we can say as far as of Jesus from what we read in the Bible and what we know is God is serious about the stuff to do with the world. He recognizes the very heart of it. There's no um, uh, diving or ducking away from those things like there is in other religions. And especially on this day, as we dive into, if you like, the valley of sin. If you can put the next thing up, we're using this sort of... Uh, picture really of how we're going to go through Romans and if you like we've gone from the good news of the gospel and we're in the valley of sin we're in that place uh, of sin and in some ways on a day like today remembering the carnage and destruction of two world wars as well as uh, continuing capacity to destroy ourselves in Israel or Syria or Yemen or um, Ukraine wherever it might be what are the roots of this how have we ended up like this this is what we're going to focus on. So buckle up and let's crack in to these verses. Last week we see Paul eager to get to Rome and share the good news. He can't keep quiet about it. Verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation. I'm prepared to be flogged, to be imprisoned, to be beaten up for the sake of sharing this good news. And the word salvation is of course the word rescue. Jesus came to rescue each one of us, you and me. Now many people say, why is it we keep going on about this Jesus? I'm pretty good. Quite often when you talk to people, even about faith, they quite often say, well, I'm pretty good. I'm all right compared to everyone else. But here as we go into Romans uh, 1.18, we start to discover the basis of why there is such a problem in the world. We come across this phrase here, straight in, the wrath of God is being revealed. God's anger towards all the wrong in the world that we need to be rescued from. Now, when we hear the word wrath, I don't know how, what you find when you hear the word wrath. There are two Greek words, funnily enough, I discovered in relation 
to uh, the word wrath. One is the word theomos. I've got a theologian here, so he's going to pick me up on this probably. But, um, you know, it, it's the root of it is thermometer, if you like, heat. And very often when you hear the word wrath of God, immediately you're thinking some sort of um, impulsive, unhinged God who's pouring out wrath. But interestingly, the uh, translation actually is another Greek word of that word wrath is orge, which means like a, an anger that builds up over a, a, a period of time, like a, a settled, controlled anger. An anger not impulsive or unhinged, but if you like a sad, righteous anger. It's seeing something that is so wrong and responding to that. That is the sense that we have here, the effect of sin and darkness bringing that type of wrath. That's what we're talking about here. Not some unhinged God who's just desperate to, um, to, to, to have a go in some hot rage. But as we look at a verse like this and we say God is angry with us, we sort of react and we say, well, it's a, we're in the 21st century now. The idea of God being angry with us, it's a bit primitive, isn't it? And yet, um, I don't know about you, but when we hear stories of people being exploited or abused, our planet being trashed, recognising the richest 1% own half the world's resources, or 22,000 children dying in poverty. Does that not make you angry? Wilberforce was driven by a righteous anger to see the abolition of slavery. This anger is not primitive. We feel this because we care. Imagine if God just looked down on the abuse of the world, the vulnerable, the destruction, and just shrugged his shoulders. Stanley Kubrick, the uh, famous film director, said this, the most terrifying fact about the universe is its indifference. God is, we're saying here, not distant. Life is not all about fate. No, the God of the Bible cares. He cares enough to be angry about the things that are wrong. One day, this holy, loving God will draw everything to a close in his judgment. He will judge everything for its unrighteousness and everybody. But you say, I get this. And um, certain people, uh, you know, it's, it's right for certain people, for God to get angry with. It's very easy to look at this passage and go, well, what about them? It's them. Surely they're the ones who are the reason why we are the way we are. It's them. It's very easy to point the finger and look at others. But what we start to realize is Paul unwraps this. And as we actually start to look properly at this, we realize it's not about them. It's actually about us. The culmination of these few chapters on this, of course, are those famous words we, uh, that John talked about last week. All you all, me, them, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So ultimately then, God is angry with all of us. Let's dig a bit further into this. Verses 18 to 23. If you like, why does he feel that angry? It's because of the godlessness and wickedness of people. This has led to those things. It's the very contrast from verse 17, which says the righteousness of God, the good, righteous things of God, is that we have chosen to do our own thing, to go our own way, and to express ourselves in those ways. And yet, why are we doing this? Because we are made to live for him. We're made to reflect his ways. But instead of it, what do we do? We suppress the truth about God. 
We deny who God is. For many people in our, in our, in our, our friends and relatives just say, we don't believe in this God. And yet Paul says, why would you suppress the truth when the truth is, as he goes on to say here, plain to us? If we look in verse 19, it's plain to us. It's obvious to us, surely, in what we see around us. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without an ex- uh, without excuse. What he's saying, look around you. See what there is. Next uh, slide. See what there is around us and marvel. God has revealed himself in a variety of ways, including creation. Obviously, scientists increasingly are marveling, aren't they, at the universe. We keep sending up various telescopes, bigger telescopes and more long-distance telescopes because we want to discover the secret of this incredible universe that we live in. I came across this stat, which I don't really understand, but it said this, if the, 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 the conditions are right for life on earth and this stat said this if the ratio between the strong nuclear constant and the electromagnetic constant was different by one part in 10 million billion there wouldn't be any stars now I haven't got a clue really as a non-scientist about what that means but I think I know enough to say that everything is just right in a way that we start to ask the question is there not someone behind this all you only have to, to look up into the sky, uh, skies to, to realise something. A guy who uh, became a Christian actually in COVID here, who had been atheist most of his life, a uh, young life. Um, and, uh, and he said to me, he said, but I, uh, when he, just after he became a Christian, he said, I remember a moment actually when I was with a friend of mine on the, in, the, in the South China Sea. We were lying on a boat and we were looking out the sky. I wasn't interested in God at all. I wasn't following God at all. But I looked up in the sky and I looked back now and I remember thinking, wow, there must be someone there. That's interesting. And the fact is, is what Paul's saying here, it's plain to us that God speaks in a whole lot of different ways through creation and in incredible ways, whether it's a sunset or a sunrise. And the beauty of that, which I saw recently while I was on holiday. We don't see it much these days in this country. But anyhow, I saw it while I was on holiday. And the sunset and the sunrise every morning. We, we echo King David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. And yet, still, if you ask the average person, how did this all occur? They'll say, well, it just happened. By chance. I've got down here, you know, one of the, the most important inventions of the last 20, 100 years, a Lego block. Don't you really secretly love it when you maybe with your grandchildren or whatever, and you quite often find yourself, the grandchildren have run off, all that stuff, and there you are making your own thing, aren't you? There's something about Lego that's incredible. You just, it's brilliant. You build little things. But then when look at the next scene here, these things, I don't know whether you've ever been to Legoland. You've been to Legoland? Anybody been to Legoland? You ought to go, it's brilliant. But you go to Legoland and there's incredible things made out of Lego. London there, look, you can see people walking along looking at these Lego um, designs or whatever. Now, of course, we all know what happened there. That What happened was that in the middle of the, of the park, the guy was the manager, just got together and he threw a whole load of Lego bricks up in the air like that. And they landed and that's what happened. 
That's the remarkable thing. It's incredible. Or maybe there was someone who designed it. Someone behind it who knew what it was about. But it's amazing, isn't it? We prefer to choose chance rather than maybe it's plain to us and it's seen. We don't talk about propagating DNA, do we? We talk about falling in love because we were made in the image of a God who is love. Even in death, we weep and cry. If it's just chance, if we're just molecules, why do we do that? Because our loved ones are not just dust. We can't get away from a God who knows us and loves us and is real. And he sums it up in verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile. You see, we knew who this God was. Paul begins to glance back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis. We knew who he was. We were in relationship with him. But what do we do? We step back. We said, well, we can do it better ourselves. We can operate ourselves in the way we want to. We begin to cut him out. Do you see what we've done? Next picture. Jesus told a story of uh, a son who lived with his brother and father. And all the clues were that his father was kind, that life was good. For some reason, though, the son goes up to the father and says, give me my share of the estate. Of course, normally he would get his estate at dad's death. But he says, I can't wait. I don't want you anymore. I want the money, but not you. He takes the money, he runs. Paul says, that's the story of humanity. All is available for us, but we decide to do our own thing. God is like the good father who loves us and wants to bless us. He calls us to live on his estate and be part of his plans. But like the story, we know best and want to take the money and run. So why is God angry with us? Because we have defied him. We have defied him. And we have said we want to do it ourselves. We're not just to turned away from him, but as it says, verse 22, we have turned to other things. It says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings. We've replaced him with things. Now in the past, we would have Maybe, you know, people would have worshipped, um, you know, wood and stone expressed in idols and all that sort of stuff. But we're not like them, are we? we? We don't operate like them. We're beyond that sort of thing, aren't we? And yet, if we actually zone it down, if we drill down to it, we discover that actually we are just like them. For we have replaced God with things, whether it's reputation whether it's the stuff that is all around us, whether it's even work, which we elevate to something that actually can destroy. Because work is good, but it's not God. Paul is saying here that we have to be so careful. In fact, by doing that, we have become foolish. And then Jesus' story of the, the son says he lives it up. But as his father was kind and loved him, the contrast with the people he started to spend his time with was that they spat him out and they mocked him and they threw him out. And by the end of the story, next picture, he's in the pigsty. He's right down in the midst of it. And we think, what a fool to turn from your father to work in a pigsty, to actually defy the loving God. And in essence, what Paul is saying here, that's exactly what we've done. And that's exactly where we are. 
That is the nature of sin. We've effectively insulted a holy, loving God. We'd rather live for something else, thank you very much. We are fools. We'd rather live in a pigsty than to live for God. Now, I know this is heavy duty, but in a sense, Paul is saying, and if you want to know the good news, we need to understand the reality of the bad news and the brokenness of what that has meant into our world today. But how does he respond to our defiance? And we go even further into the pit, if you like. It's terrifying because what God does in response to our defiance, it says verse 24 onwards to 32, he gives us what we want. He gives us what we want. We see verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. His love, for some reason, enabled us. Verse 26, he gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them over into these things. And he describes the consequence of handing human beings over to what human beings want. Now these next few verses that we're looking at here are very hard. They're very hard to hear for many of us. And I must say they're very hard to preach in relation to particularly to sexual impurity is what it talks about here. And I know some of us will look at this, particularly in relation to homosexual sex, and we'll go, what sort of God is this? He seems so hateful. And to be honest, in many ways, we'd maybe like to just avoid these verses. We'd prefer to go another way and not look at things like this. But the Christian conviction is that the Bible, as was stated by Chris at the end, is the word of God. And it means that when we come to passages like this, we might just want to cut them out, but we can't. Because if you cut out the bits you don't like, I believe you stop listening to God himself. And we're in danger of just using the Bible as some sort of prop to back up what we think. And what I'm learning more and more is the Christian life is not what I think, but to seek to know what God thinks. And he calls me to submit to him as my creator. And I might think, well, really? You say this? But somehow in the midst of it, I have to remind myself that he is good. And I don't understand fully everything, but he is good. And he has his best. And his desire is to bless and not to harm. But where is the love in all this, you might say? I believe it is possible to say hard things with love. Just as the child lurching across the street, you say stop, don't you? Because you don't want them to be hurt. Or the friend, you want to stop drinking. You say stop because you don't want them to be hurt. Because you love them. And these are hard words and difficult words. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us as he speaks into us and into our culture. And the most important thing to say is when we look at this again, it's not about them. And it's easy to point on them because actually it's about us. It's about us. Because we're all on the list. We're all in the same boat. But you might say, well, why does he have to start with sex? Is Paul somehow obsessed with sex? I think it's because sex, all sin is sin, but some sin has more consequences than others. 
And sin, if you like, in this context of sex, if you like, is a more vivid example of the exchange that Paul is talking about. The exchange of the natural for the unnatural. When we exchange the living for God for living for ourselves. You see, sex is meant to be a picture of faithful relationship with God. He talks about homosexual sex in particular in verses 26 and 27. and About uh, uh, that area. But what Paul is doing is mirroring and reminding them of Genesis 1.27, where it talks there about God creating humanity, male and female, in his own image. And then in Genesis 2.24, two different people, men and man and woman, male and female, coming together as different because they're meant to reflect the relationship we have with God who is different. And Jesus himself in Matthew 19 also refers to that and talks of that himself. This is such uh, an area of hot debate, and obviously with our own denomination in particular. But as I've grappled with the Bible and many insights and spent time with people who would be LGBT and talked and, and really thought through, what does the Bible have to say about this? My understanding still is that the established pattern for procreation, sexual expression, is intended by God to take place between a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage. And so in the coming together of those that are of the same sex, that's why it calls it unnatural here. And I believe if God has a best plan for us, with all the challenges this brings and all the, the desire we need to have to love people and to walk with people, not to become in some righteous them, because we come as people with broken sexualities ourselves. I come as a broken, straight man with all the challenges and all the temptations. But I have to seek to follow the things of God because he loves us and he knows what's best. But of course as well, the reminder is, you see, we can focus in on the sex part of things. But actually it goes on to say things in here, verse 28, 29, a whole list of things. Of course, none of us here struggle with or none of us get caught up in with. Um, you know, it says about things like being a gossip. None of us would ever gossip. We don't gossip, we just pray about it. But how easily we can say, well, it's them, but it's just as much us about envy, about deceit, about malice, about being a slanderer, about being arrogant, about being boastful. What he's saying here, that these things are, we think are just part of life. But actually they are unnatural. They're not the way we were made to be. They're not the way we're supposed to act. And this holy God in relation to this thing, all he can do is be full of anger for these things. Now, you might still look at these things and say, well, basically, I'm pretty good. There's only maybe a, maybe a couple on that list that affect me. I'm basically good. It's them who are causing the trouble. But I'm basically good. But think about a boat, a really lovely boat, wooden boat. And it looks beautiful. You know, it's like some of those ones you see on the, on the rivers from time to time. They're beautiful and whatever. And it's, it's, it's been... It's been, it's not being pucker, it's been done up beautifully. But the problem is there's a, there's a hole in it. Just a tiny hole, just a small hole. It's a beautiful boat. 
But it's not a good boat, is it? Because it can look beautiful, but it's not a good boat. It can't float. You see, we were made to live for God. We can look beautiful, but even if we have one thing on that list, we're not good. We've run away. We're in the pigsty. Why does he let us get to the pigsty? Why does he hand us over to the consequences? Well, he, sh- he does that to show us how serious it is to defy this holy God. And I think God is calling us afresh as church, as people, to understand about the holiness of God. Because as we're going to see, as we understand the depth of the sin that is around us, when we wake up and realize the mess that is in the world comes from this, then we begin to face the reality of how we can come out of it. So how does this defying of God, which leads to the devastating consequences we be dealt with? Well, we come to a little bit of good news at the end. Because of course, in this moment, in that place of sin, we know that God has sent his one and only son to put us right. It's why we all need the gospel. Now there's a variety of of people here today. Many of you have been Christ followers for years and years. And maybe the reminder from this, as I found on Reddit, is we've forgotten the core of where we've come from in coming to know Jesus. We've forgotten the depth of sin and brokenness and what that has meant and the effect that leads to the devastation in lives today, whether it's our own lives, our family lives, or whatever. Maybe once we realize that, we realize that in facing the recognition that Jesus himself has come and he has taken all what we deserve, God's wrath, onto himself, that we might be free. Then we can just say, thank you, Lord. One for your holiness, but also for your grace. That you didn't leave us, but you sent your son to die for us and deal with the depth of that sin. For some of us even who come today, we might not be followers of Jesus. And you say, well, I'm fine. Or maybe it's a reminder that we're not fine until we respond to the truth of the sin and say yes to Jesus himself. We're not safe yet until we allow the rescuer, Jesus, to come and save us. Final picture, of course, the incredible picture. This loving, kind, holy father. In this story, the son comes to his senses and he turns to his father. He comes to his father thinking this father, the good, kind father, Father God, will just reject me and never speak to me again. But what does he do? What does the father do? It says that he runs. He runs towards the prodigal son. He runs towards him and meets him and kisses him. My son, who was dead, is alive. And what does he do? He throws a party for him. And so if we turn to God today in Christ, God is running towards you in your sin. And he wants to meet you and embrace you. 
and he will do it. Let's pray. Father God, we've uh, grappled with some big, big stuff today. And we come to you honestly today and recognize the holiness of God. We recognize that we, as much as anyone else, have defied God, sought to do our own thing. And we see the effect of that on our world today. And Lord God, as we prayed earlier, we are sorry. And we repent and we turn to you. We thank you that you are fundamentally a good, loving father. Thank you that you are there, ready to embrace us as we come home to you. And even as we recognize the value of sin, we thank you for the grace of salvation through your son, Jesus. We pray we would know the depths of that more and more each day. In Jesus' name, amen.